All right, so we're gonna finish Philippians 3 today. And this is gonna be pretty cool. And I did not plan this. This just works out. So you guys know we walk through the Bible. That's what we're doing. We're doing an expositional study. We started in Galatians. We went through Ephesians. We started in Galatians because it's the first letter that Paul wrote. And then we made our way through Ephesians because we're just going to go through the Bible. And now we're in Philippians. We're getting ready to finish the third chapter. But this, when I, I told you last week, when I read this, I was like, this is a God thing. So you just wait and see. And we'll read it. And then you'll know. And you'll nod your head. But our recap is that last week we discussed Paul's encouragement to press on towards the goal, right? So this is a fitting, I think, message for us that we are to press on and and it's a physical press on. This is not just like, oh yeah, I'm going to have a good attitude today. This is about getting to work, pressing on towards the goal. He wants to be encouraged to press on to make the resurrection of the dead our own right? We work and we love and we serve towards this end, right? He realizes that he's not perfect. And Paul tells us this in last week's study. He's like, if anybody deserves to be saved, it's me. I'm the perfect Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, Pharisee, Jew of Jews. I'm the guy, but I do what? I count it all as lost. I can't do it. I can't do it. And neither can you. So therefore we press on towards the goal. And I remember this work is not for our salvation, but it's from our salvation. It's from realizing who we are. It's from realizing who God is and what he has done in our lives, right? And one of the important things we learned last week was that Paul reminds us that um, we need to set our past aside because it's hard to move forward from where you are when you keep dragging along this big box full of junk that's behind you. I'm a sinner. I did this thing, I had this sin, I have this scar, I've got this junk that I carry with me. That stuff, it just goes in your pack and you can't carry it. You need to set it aside. Because as he told us, if you remember in Galatians and in Ephesians, you are made new. You are made, you are a new creation in Christ. You don't need that stuff. I'm not saying you're not going to have scars, you're not going to have bumps and bruises, you're not going to have things that people can see about you in your past, or people chatter about in your past but the reality is you are new then you can remind people that but what about that thing you did yeah i did that but god made me new that's not me i'm a new person because the holy spirit dwells inside of me he reminds us of that right and the more mature that we become as believers the more we separate ourselves from the past right as time goes by that passage is it's in the past it's stuck there and i move away from it become more mature and i press on towards, as we talked about last week, the upward call, right, of God in Jesus Christ. It's an upward call. He has called us to him. We're not climbing to him. He is calling us up to him, right? So remember, you have all been called. You're believers. God called you to him for redemption in him. And part of that calling, excuse me, is being conformed to his image. So the more mature we get, the more we move away from the past, the more we look like Christ, right? Paul explains this in Romans 8 very well, right? In this physical pressing on towards the goal, we realize that when the race is complete, we'll be made perfect. And we call that being glorified. This is when God makes us new. And today, we're going to talk about who we are and who we model ourselves off after as we move on towards the goal 
Because really what we are while we're here is you're not citizens of this earth. You're not of this world. You are citizens of heaven. That's what Paul tells us. So we should act like we're citizens of heaven. When you travel in the world, even when you travel in the United States, people will ask you who you are, where are you from? Right? You are citizens of heaven. <clears throat> you don't belong here. You're a traveler. When you go to Europe and you go to visit a country and you go to France and people realize you have an accent, they realize you're different. You look a little, you dress a little different, right? Because we're Americans and we're cooler than everybody else. They will ask you, where are you from? Or they might ask, are you from the United States? Yeah, I'm a citizen of the United States. This is how we live our life as believers. People should, they recognize this difference in you. I'm a citizen of heaven. So let's read this. Turn to Philippians. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to finish this thing out. Starting in verse 17, and we're going to go through verse 21. So Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, we're going to go through verse 21. Paul writes this. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is in their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So when we start this out, when Paul starts this section out, he's calling those in attendance Adelphos. So it says, in my translation, it says brothers. In some translations, it says brethren. And this is actually a really cool word because it less means like if I just call you brother or if I have a brother or a sister and I call you sister or brother, really what it, the word Adelphos means is you who are from the same womb. So imagine if, I mean, this would be a weird way to talk to people, but if I were to say, hey, you who is from the same womb as I am, it's an odd way to address them. But think about the personal nature of what this means when you address somebody as, hey, brother, hey, sister in Christ. It doesn't just mean we are related or we love each other. This means we are from the same womb. We are created by the same God. We are new and alive together in the same Christ. It is a very, very personal, very intimate love for one another, my brethren, those of you, I mean, because remember, these people aren't related to Paul. They're just Christians that are gathered around him. But he's saying, you're more to me than just me calling you a brother. You are like my actual physical brothers and sisters. Very important to understand this from the same womb. And he embraces the idea of believers being from the same father right? Because he is our father. We are called to him. We are born of him. So don't take it lightly in the church. And I think we do this too easily in the contemporary church. Hey brother, hey sister. It's just kind of like a word we use. We just kind of throw it out there. It's a weighty word. Some of you, especially I think in the military, when we use that word, it means something to call someone your brother. I have in my life as I got older been 
a little more careful about who I say that to when I work with somebody because there are people who are not your brothers or people who are not your sisters. And what does that mean? Like when I say Adelphos, when I say you're my brother in the church, well, it means a couple things. Like I expect things from you. I expect when I need you that you're there for me because you're my brother, you're my sister. If I asked you for something, you should work to the end to try to do that for me. It also means that you need to be prepared to meet things with brutal honesty. When your brothers and sisters are messing things up, you should be able to look at them and say, you are doing this wrong and not have some sort of backlash. You should have an honest conversation about what is going on because that's what family does. They help each other. They correct each other, right? Be prepared to not only back it up with brutal honesty, but then move on that in sacrificial love. What do you need from me? Why are you hurting? What do you need to hear from me? What can I do to make you better? What can I do to edify you, lift you up in the Lord? Be prepared to work. That's what that means. It means love is what it means. It doesn't just mean, hey, brother, in the surfer way. It means, hey, brother, as in the we're family and we love each other sort of way. Or sisters, brethren, both. So in this, in this passage that he talks about, he's seeing people glory in their shame. I'm going to talk about this a little bit as he goes through this. Um, Paul's example that he gives um, as he starts this um, thing. And before we get there, I want to talk about his imitation. So he's going to kind of juxtapose these right in front of each other, imitating him and then people in the church who are putting themselves to shame. So I want to talk about both those things, okay? And uh, the call for Paul here is for believers to imitate him, which sounds kind of weird because Paul's standing in front of this group of believers. He's like, imitate me and those like me, which sounds odd because as believers, you would think he'd be like, hey, imitate Christ. Well, that becomes difficult for the people at Philippi because Christ is not walking with them. It's Paul who's walking with them. It's Paul who's leading them. It's Paul who's exposing the word of God to them. It's Paul who's giving them kind of the do's and the don'ts of what it is to be a Christian in the first century. So he's like, imitate me. Paul's qualified. How do we know he's qualified? Well, because he's an apostle and we went over what the qualifications are to be an apostle, which there are none of today. He walked with Christ for three years, right? The risen Christ came back, blinded Paul, lived with him for three years and taught him. So Paul knows Christ. Paul knows what these people need. And he's saying, um, imitate me, right? He's clear he's a sinner. He's not perfect. So the call to imitate him instead of Christ, it is a little strange. The reality is he's qualified. He knows that the church needs good discipleship. He knows that the church needs good leadership. And this is important, right? Because for us, this is what we need to set up our churches to do. Good leadership, good discipleship. But he doesn't just say to imitate me. He says to imitate us as well. What is the us that's there? We can assume he's talking about a couple of people who we've discussed in this study. Timothy, who he writes the letter with. Epaphroditus, who brought the gift, who's a leader in the church there. And local elders of this church that is growing up since there was 11 people there. And it was just Lydia, who we talked about at the beginning, who was running the church. It's now a big church. There are people there having church on the Lord's Day, right? And he's saying, model yourself after these people. So we can assume that it's these men 
these elders that are modeling the way. And we can also assume because we know of Lydia and the women of the church that it's also women who are leading in a way that makes the church complete. So men and women working together to lead people towards Christ, imitating them. This emotional plea that he's about to give to his friends here is pretty interesting. This is the juxtaposition. Follow us, do these things, but there's people in the church that aren't doing things right, don't follow them. It's a very emotional plea. Enemies of the cross, he calls them, right? And we've talked about false teachings in this group a few times, and I don't want to exacerbate that. We've talked about it. I'm not going to get into it deeply, but there are people that are enemies of the cross in the church. The most dangerous kind of enemies of the cross are in the church. It's easy to walk around and see people who are obviously anti-Christian. You flip on the news, you can see people who are anti-Christian, people that are pro-murder, um, people who are, you know, your typical communist, Marxist, whatever that's running around out there. They are anti-Christian. They don't want you to have that freedom in Christ. Um, atheism. We can go down the list, but the reality is the most dangerous ones, the ones that make Paul upset, are the ones that are in the church. And we've talked about that a little bit. In this group, we've talked about some false teachers, and we've talked about contemporary music just plowing its way through the Christian church, and it is dragging people with it badly. Um, if you want to talk to me about it offline, we can do that because it's becoming a bigger problem. Um, but we can assume in this case that Paul's stance is for the firm teaching of the gospel without any other stuff on top of it, okay? And I, I, I want to make you understand with me that I'm passionate about this. Now, I'm not crying in front of you, but Paul is actually saying, <laughs> when you read this, uh, that he says, even with tears, he's telling them with tears in his eyes. I want to talk to you about that for a second, this emotional plea. Um, because if you feel like I've said it a few times since we've been together over a year and a half, like your, your worship should be right. We should be doing things right. We should be striving for what is right, striving for what is good. It's important to Christ. It's important to Paul. It should be important to us. The word of God is very clear about this. False teachers need to be set aside. I want to read you a couple of quotes. Um, you know I love quoting Spurgeon, and I'm going to read you a couple of quotes just so you can hear this loud and clear. So C.H. Spurgeon says this, and he's talking about Paul crying over false teachers being in the church. Listen, Spurgeon says, I never read that the apostle wept when he was persecuted. So we've talked about Paul getting whipped, getting beaten almost to death. Spurgeon is saying, I haven't, I haven't read anything about Paul being crying for being persecuted though they plowed his back with furrows i do not believe that never a tear was seen gush from his eye while the soldiers scourged him though he was cast into prison this isn't philippi when he gets there he's thrown in prison we read of his singing never his groaning he gets thrown into prison and he is singing praises remember it makes the jailer get saved he goes to his house Never is groaning. I do not believe he ever wept on account of any sufferings or dangers to which he himself was exposed for Christ's sake. I call this an extraordinary sorrow because the man who wept was no soft piece of sentiment and seldom shed a tear even under grievous trials. 
So Paul's telling them, I am crying over you for these people who are in your church who are just making it tough for you and teaching false things and tearing it apart and causing strife and trying to make dissent and people not like each other and not get along and not serve each other, not treat each other well, tearing apart marriages. All the things that happen in the church now, they're, they're happening then. And it's bringing Paul to tears. A man who, as Spurgeon exposits here, has been beaten and torn apart and 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 pushed to the verge of death and thrown in prison, he never whimpers for himself. In this case, he is sad for his friends. He is sad for his friends. The second quote I'm going to read you is about these false teachers who are the enemies of the cross that Paul talks about. And I want you to hear this. This is Spurgeon again. It says, Professors of religion who get into the church and yet lead ungodly lives are the worst enemies of the cross or the worst enemies the cross has. These are the sort of men who bring tears into the minister's eyes. These are they who break his heart. They are the enemies of the, of the cross of Christ. When we've talked about like some of the music I've gone over with you guys a few times, but people who are false teachers in the church, these are the thing, these should make you mad. I don't want my kids to be in a position where as they grow and they move on, they end up in a place where people are willingly, intentionally trying to do those things that the contemporary church is doing in America today, like put their hands in their pockets to try to get the money out and lead them astray. But it's happening and it should burden you. It should burden you, especially when you have younger kids. And it, it, it's tough to be very deliberate about making sure you know what your kids are getting all the time and even the Christian content that they get. So I just encourage you in that, like, it's important. It's important to know that the teaching is right, right? So, but they love Jesus too. Look deeper because these people were in the church. They'd be like, we're on Jesus's team. And then they're not, and they're tearing it apart. And that's what burdening Paul here. And it should burden you because if it burdens a guy that's that tough, then it should definitely burden me. So I want to say that. So it's imperative that we hold fast to, uh, to standing up for what is right and what is true and, and holding false teachers accountable, right? I don't ever want to be responsible for leading one of you astray, ever, in anything that I say. And I encourage you, if I say something and you think it's wrong or incorrect or have a question, please come to me and let's talk about that. Um, what's almost more heartbreaking for me, I think as I get older, and I have especially the strong guys around me who I've been blessed to have around me for the last like 30 years. We're like the toughest men in the world is they'll get into a church with their family and the teaching is just junk and they are willing to blindly follow them. And I'm like, you would not do that at work. You would not go to work on a team somewhere and go run a mission with a leader who was leading you into danger the wrong way or to death. You would say something, you would stand up, you would do something. But you will willingly follow a false teacher to church every Sunday with your wife and kids in tow and not say a thing. It is shameful. It is our responsibility. We prayed for this at the beginning. It's up to us. We are responsible for our wives and our kids. We have to do it, guys. We cannot let them fall prey to the junk that's out there. I'm not saying it's all junk. There's great stuff out there. I'm just saying find the great stuff and stick to it. Find the good leaders and stick to them. 
you'll find that it whittles your access down. But that's okay, because the good stuff's really good stuff. And you won't need all the other stuff. It doesn't need to look flashy. No smoke machines, no laser light shows, just good stuff. Stuff that's good for your heart. It's my encouragement for you. So Paul makes it abundantly clear here that those people, they're destined for destruction. Right? So these people are destined for destruction. So what happens when we follow them like good sheep? They lead you to destruction. So let's not do that. He tells us that their God is in their belly. Our God is in heaven. Their God is in their belly. He means to say that they stuff their faces with the things of this world. Right? They just pile it in. All the stuff of this world. Whatever that is. It's that hunger for earthly things. Money. Sex. Power. Popularity, vanity. We were talking about social media earlier. That's like all of that is in social media. He even goes as far to say that they glory in their shame. I don't know if you guys have watched the news lately, but that is a thing. People actually glory in their shame. With this abortion debate that's going on, there are <laughs> uh, there are videos of people that are like, "Yes, I want to kill babies," and I'm like, "But what? What is wrong with you?" They glory in their shame. They, they don't care. It is purely satanic. We're seeing this all the time lately in this abortion movement. They care not about the life that God created, and they care not about the Creator, who's the author of the universe. They, they could care less, right? But the real difference here is our citizenship, right? The real difference between us and them is our citizenship. We are in heaven. You see... When the Holy Spirit entered you and you became saved, it's like you got a passport. You got a passport that's made by Him. It's stamped by Him. It's only by Him. You can't make one. The government can't make you one. Only God can make you one. It's brand new. It's just yours. He actually had it from before the foundation of time and He gave it to you at some point in your existence. Right? You're a citizen of heaven. Listen to this, John 15. Jesus' words, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christ is being clear. You are not of this world. You are of mine. You are my child. You are not from here. You're just passing through. You got a lot of responsibility while you're here, but you're mine. You're passing through. You got that passport. When the end comes, you're a citizen of heaven. Right? When you look into Revelation 21, if any of you have liked to do like eschatology, end time study stuff, God has prepared a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to talk about this just for a minute, making things new. It's a, this temporary position um, because sin entered into creation and has just stained it all, what God has done, what He planned from the beginning of the time was knowing it would be stained is like, I'm going to make it all new just for you. He provides this citizenship into a new dwelling place for His perfection. Paul says to us in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed. So with that maturity, leaving that junk behind we talked about earlier, that junk, that sin, those scars, that weight, that pain, that shame, that sin, that stuff, 
that you just leave it behind and you move forward out of it and you get more mature, your mind is transforming. I'm getting closer to God. All of this provision is from God. All of it's about loving my family. And people are going to see that and they're going to want to know why. And I'm going to go, because it's from God. And they're going to see it and I'm going to be able to tell them about this. And I'm going to become more mature and I'm going to become more transformed. This is how we get closer to the image of Christ that we bear in our lives, right? He does not want our minds to even begin to think that we're part of this world. He's like, forget about that place. It's dying. Our thoughts should be focused on awaiting our Savior, Jesus Christ, right? The last verse in this chapter gives us some insight into a part of the resurrection that should amplify our hope. So our, we're talking about joy. We're talking about joy through this whole book, and we're going to tie that right into our hope, to our joy. So here it comes. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And I was like, I read this three weeks ago, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so perfect. This, I can't even tell you. It gave me goosebumps. So what does this mean, that he's going to transform our body to be perfect when we cross over into heaven? What does it mean? Do you just get a new one like you? Like you get there and he's like, takes one off, sticks one on. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than just you're a new you. It's deeper than that. It's more loving than that. Before the foundation of time, God knew you were going to bang that that tent up. And he was ready to recreate it. Listen, in 1 Corinthians, in, um, in chapter 15, verses 42 to 53 there's this whole explanation of what it's going to look like and let me give you just some of the cliff's notes what does this look like that when you die and you go to be with the father because jesus is going to deliver you there what does it look like our bodies will be imperishable you can't destroy it time can't destroy it sin can't destroy it satan can't destroy it nothing nothing can break it nothing can hurt it it'll be honorable everything about your body I don't, if you're anything like me, you've done a lot of undis, unhonor, dishonorable things with your body, right? Unhonorable, dishonorable. You've done a lot of things that you would like to set in your past, but you have a hard time setting them aside because we bear the scars of that pain throughout our life. And as hard as we try, sometimes it's like, man, I wish God would take that memory away. I wish God would take that thing away. And it's hard because you're here in the world. He's like, your body will be honorable, everything about it. No stains. Powerful. Your body will be powerful. What did God create in perfection, Adam and Eve, to do in the garden? To work. To love each other. To work. To make babies. To name things. Naming convention. If you look at Jewish history, that's an important thing. That's a position of power. To be able to name the animals. To be able to name the plants. You have the position of power with your kids. If you think about it, who named your kids? I did. I named my kids. So as a mom and a dad, you choose. These, these are my kids. That's my power over my... I got to tell you who you are. Tell you who you are. So you have this power in you, right? They will no longer be natural bodies that are subject to the laws of this world, will not be affected by sin. It will not be affected by degeneration. You won't get older. You won't get sicker. Injury, sickness, and death, gone. Everything perfect. Never have to mourn over a friend anymore. Everybody will be perfect. God is going to make us perfect. In Luke 24, it talks a little bit about this. Our new bodies, they will be physical bodies. They'll be tangible, touchable. 
but not driven to please the desires of the flesh, which is how we live our lives now. No matter how hard we try, it's what we do. I get up very early in the morning and the first button I push is to turn the coffee pot on. I, I, it, like, I know that I'm going to do it. I, my brain knows that I'm going to do it. I, it's not even subconscious. It's conscious. I know. I leave. It's like 17 steps from the side of the bed to the coffee pot. Poof, I push the button. I will no longer need those things in my life. I will no longer fight against the desires of the flesh because they won't be existent for me. I'll live in perfection. We will be perfect. We will get to walk with the Father. As Adam and Eve walked with the Father in the garden, they walked with him. It was perfect. Perfect fellowship. Rejoice with the Father. Worship with the Father. Live in perfect fellowship with the Father and with each other. Why? Because of the Son, which is why we're here today, because the Son makes that possible. And this is the thing. We talked about how we're going to tie it into joy. This is where we find our joy. We find our joy in knowing that God restores everything. God makes everything new. I've talked to you about my marriage. I'd be divorced today if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. It would not work. I would have left that lady years ago. She probably would have left me first had I not left her. I'm not saying it made our marriage better. That's a misnomer about becoming a Christian. Your marriage is going to get better. <laughs> no, probably going to get harder. But now I know why I'm married to honor him and to raise kids in him. It's to lay my life down for her. It's not to make it easier for me. You think that's easier? It's a lot easier to leave your wife than to love her sacrificially, trust me. It's a lot easier to get up and be like, I'm done with this and leave than to get up and say, man, I hate her guts today. I'm gonna make her pancakes. And I'm gonna do it again tomorrow. I don't even eat pancakes. You do it because you love him. <clears throat> why do we love him? Because he loved us first. That's why. He will make all things new. Let him regenerate those things. Let him. He's going to whether you want him or not. But when you follow him, he sure makes it a lot easier in your life when you do that. So how do we know that he can do this for us? Are these just words? Am I just saying this? Am I just giving you a you know, victory lap speech? Like, hey, God's going to make it all new. Do you know that he can do it? Do you know that he can do it? Does it say in the word of God somewhere that he can do it? Well, he is the God that has the power to subject all things to himself. He's the creator of the universe. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. Isaiah 66 says that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Where we live right now, this is easy. This is easy pickings. He's got this. He's got fixing your marriage. He's got fixing your addiction. He's got fixing your sin. He's got fixing that shame. That's easy pickings. You just need to press on upwards towards God because of Jesus Christ. He has the power to put all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and makes him the head over the church. Ephesians 1.22. We went over that about two months ago. And we're going to finish with this. So... And then we'll uh, sing our praises to God, the creator of the universe, the one true God, the most powerful and loving God, the name above all names. He can do anything with his power. And what he chooses to do for me, what he chooses to do for you is to restore your broken body to perfection. 
to make it brand new. That's what he chooses to do. Restore it all to perfection so that you and I can experience his glory and love and fellowship in a way that I cannot in this broken shell. Uh, right now we can't. We just cannot. We try. We work very hard in this fellowship where we try to love one another and treat one each other right in your marriage where you try your best to make it work but you know that it just kind of falls short all the time no matter how hard you try. He's going to make you new so that you can do all of those things perfectly. Whatever shame, guilt, or curse that is lingering in this old flesh, it's going to be gone forever. It'll be gone forever. You see, we're citizens of heaven. And as we dream of that glorious place, we start to make it more real in our minds and we start to press towards that, as Paul said, press towards that. We know that it's going to be new. We are going to be new. We have that passport, that passport the Holy Spirit gave us, right? The way has been paid by Christ Jesus. That's why we come and meet together to worship him who has paved the way for us to get there. And when we get there, the Father has made it perfect. Not just you, but that place. It's perfect. Not better. It's not better than this. It's perfect. And that is where we find our joy. Father, we are so thankful for you and we love you and we just ask that you give us constant reminders in our lives, in our marriages, with our kids, with the people that we work around and the people that we interact with in life. That they would see that we are different. That they would ask, where are you from? What makes you different? What made you handle that situation different? What made you respond that way? That they would know that we are pressing on towards something greater than us. Pressing on towards you, Lord. I ask that you fill us with joy as we continue to read this letter from Paul. That we understand there's work to be done. There are things that are good for us and things that are not good for us. And it should burden us, those things that are not. We should strive for perfection. Knowing that we will never be perfect here and now. But that you, Lord, are not only the creator, but you are the recreator. And you will make us new again. You will fix our brokenness. You will fix our broken bodies, our broken minds. You will fix our shame, fix our guilt. And you've prepared a place for us where we find our joy that we will be in perfect fellowship with you. And we ask for our rich blessings through our Holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.